So I'd like you to join me by turning in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18, it's on page 251 in your pew Bible. That's the English Standard Version. We have been watching this unfolding drama of Absalom's revolt against his father, David. I was telling my wife this past week, it's getting harder and harder to summarize because more and more characters and events are kind of coming into the story. So to try to provide a recap is difficult. And especially if you're new here, it may just seem like there's just a sea of characters you're trying to get used to, but that's okay. We trust the Holy Spirit to bring you along as God has brought you here with us today. But we have been watching this, this drama unfold. It's, a, it's a, an engaging narrative. Um, by the looks of things, David's son Absalom, who has revolted against his father in an attempt to usurp the throne, seems to have the advantage. Uh, he has stolen the hearts of the men of Israel through his political cunning. Uh, he has declared himself to be king. He has advanced with the armies of Israel on the capital city of Jerusalem. And in the meantime, his father David, who is obviously quite a bit older, has fled the city with the rest of his household and the few who have remained loyal to him. David is on the run. He is weary. He is exhausted. He is sad. He is weeping. He is praying. And yet David has loyal friends who have not forsaken him. We have met Ittai, the Gittite, who along with his 600 soldiers are prepared to defend David to the death. And they have with them their wives and their children. There are also the Carathites and the Pelathites who, who comprise the royal bodyguard. And they too remain faithful to David. Other friends have met with David along the way, but they have been sent back to Jerusalem. David has said, look, you will be a better help to me if you don't stay with me, but go back to the city and pretend to be on Absalom's side so that you can really get information and get word to me so that we can somehow try to recoup ourselves in the midst of this conspiracy. And these friends include Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, uh, Jonathan and Ahimeaz, uh, who are the sons of Zadok, as well as Hushai, who is called David's friend. Hushai, in particular, has been sent back to Jerusalem to confound or to defeat the council of Ahithophel, who has betrayed David and gone over to Absalom. In chapter 17, which we looked at last week, Ahithophel comes up with an attack plan that involves killing David while he is weary and discouraged. And it's an excellent plan. Uh, Ahithophel would lead the charge, taking 12,000 soldiers with him, probably a 1,000 from each tribe. There are 12 tribes of Israel. So it represents the whole nation going after David. But he can catch up to David while he's still within striking distance. They'll come upon David and the people with him in the middle of the night. Everyone will begin to panic. They'll scatter like cockroaches in all directions, leaving David helplessly exposed. And Hithophel says, I will, I will kill only the king. And I will bring all the rest of the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. It's a great plan strategically. And the Bible says in chapter 17 that this plan sounded good to Absalom and to his men. But strangely, Absalom seeks a second opinion. And who does he ask for his opinion 
but Hushai, the friend of David who has come back to Jerusalem, who pretends to be on Absalom's side, but is really there to save David's neck. Hushai says to Absalom, this time the counsel Ahithophel has given you is not good. So he doesn't overplay his cards. He says, look, Ahithophel is usually right, but nobody's right 100% of the time. And on this occasion, Ahithophel is wrong. Hushai then appeals to Absalom pride saying, hey, Ahithophel shouldn't lead the charge. Absalom, you should lead the charge. And you should lead the charge not just with 12,000 men of Israel. You should go with all the armies of Israel as, as the sand of the seashore, numerous in number. And as Absalom hears this, his pride is stoked. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this sounds really, really good. And Hushai says they can flee to any city and doesn't matter where they hide, we will tear the walls down. There won't be a pebble left and you will be overwhelmingly victorious. And and this is just too much for Absalom. I mean, his pride, he is like, yes, he is so into this. And so he changes his mind. And he decides that Hushai's advice is better than Ahithophel's, even though really it is not from a strategic standpoint. And all the men with Absalom also change their minds and go with Hushai instead of Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 17, 14 tells us why they changed their minds. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And from this point forward, things are set in motion that will eventually lead to David's deliverance and Absalom's downfall. Hushai gets word to Zadok and Abiathar about the plan that's about to take place, and they get word to Jonathan and Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, so that they can run and get word to David, who's about 30 miles away. And it makes total sense, right? I was... We were talking yesterday about, uh, Ruth and I were about running. I'm like, I just can't run anymore, right? And so they have the younger guys with younger legs run that 30 miles to go tell David. It's, it's a strategic plan. But as they are leaving, another young man sees them and reports to Absalom that they're running to tell David something. These guys look like they're not on our side. And so Absalom sends some of his servants to pursue them. But a woman hides Ahimeaz and Jonathan in a well. And so when the pursuers come, they can't find them, and they go back unsuccessful in their mission. Ahimeaz and Jonathan climb out of the well, and they go on and report to David what's happening. Another, under the cover of night, David and everybody with him is able to cross the Jordan, thus creating further distance between himself and Absalom, giving himself time to prepare for this incredible conflict that's about to take place. And in the meantime, back in Jerusalem, Ahithophel, whose council was rejected, goes home and hangs himself. And probably the reason for that is because he can already see the writing on the wall. He knows that because Absalom has rejected his counsel, their days are numbered, David's going to defeat Absalom, and they're going to be executed anyway as traitors. So he's like, well, why put off the inevitable? I think I'll just go home and hang myself. And that's what he does. This brings us to the last part of chapter 17. Verse 24 says, Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. 
So Mahanaim is a stronghold about 30 miles east of the Jordan. Um, I was mistaken a second earlier when I said David was 30 miles away. He actually had reached now 30 miles beyond the Jordan, which meant he was now about 50 miles from Jerusalem, having created that further distance. Ironically, Mahanaim literally means two camps, which is, which is pretty ironic when you consider that Israel is now a divided nation and Absalom is about to be in conflict with his father, one camp with Absalom, one camp with David, and they're going to be fighting each other in just a very short period of time. As Absalom gets ready to attack, the Lord continues to look after David and those with him. Verse 25 says, Now Absalom... This is chapter 17 of 2 Samuel, verse 25. Now Absalom had sent Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. You got all that straight, right? It's like, wow, just trying to untangle this is like, okay, who are these people? So let me explain simply. Zeruiah is David's sister, which means that Joab, who leads David's army, is David's nephew. But Amasa is also David's nephew, which means that Joab, Absalom, and Amasa are all cousins. And yet they're on two sides of this conflict. And you thought your family was dysfunctional. I mean, this is like, wow. Continuing on to verses 26 to 29. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat." For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And so again, as Absalom gets ready to attack, the Lord continues to look after David and everybody with him, in this case by bringing a few very wealthy friends who are able to give them the the food and supplies that they need to sustain them in their journey. We read a few names here. Shobai, who was the brother of Hanan, the king of the Ammonites, who might have been reigning in place of his brother at this time. There's Macher, who you might remember. He's the one that gave shelter to Mephibosheth, the lame son of Jonathan, until David brought him to the king's palace to take care of him. And then there was Barzillai, who is described later on as a very wealthy man. And he'll end up accompanying David partway back to Jerusalem. We'll read more about that later. But the point is, is that, isn't it ironic that David is rejected by his own people? Absalom has turned the hearts of the men of Israel against David, and yet the ones that receive David are the Gentiles, the ones who should have been his enemies. They are the ones that receive him. Does that remind you of someone else? The one who came unto his own people, but his own people did not receive him? But to many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, Jesus the Messiah. Well, anyway, all this sets the stage for a bittersweet victory in chapter 18. And that's our text for today. 
Earlier this week, I was reading an article titled, How to Write a War Film, The Ultimate Guide. Uh, not that I have, have any intention of writing a war film. Uh, maybe uh, Salia Zepka, given her uh, video uh, talents, might be interested in writing a war film someday. But the writers of this article state, quote, the greatest advantage of war films is inherent drama. There isn't anything more dramatic in life than war. A great war film will channel this drama, but also include idiosyncratic or peculiar elements that are uh, noteworthy for war films, like how they begin the film. They have a way from the very get-go of drawing you into that drama. And one way, this is the first step they give in this article, the first way to draw people into the drama of a war movie is to generate tension early on. And that is precisely what we see here at the outset of chapter 18. There is a tension that we feel right in the text. There's not just the mounting tension because we know this conflict is about to take place between the armies of David and the armies of Absalom, but there's also an internal tension going on within David because he knows that the conspiracy needs to be crushed, but the one leading the conspiracy is his own son. So how do you reconcile justice of a king with the love of a father? That's the tension David feels, and it's evident in the first four verses. Look at 2 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 4. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Right, well, on one hand, we see strong leadership on the part of David, don't we? I mean, this is indicated by the action verbs we see in the first few verses. David musters all his troops. Uh, he sets commanders over them. He sends them out in three main divisions led by three well-known commanders, Joab, uh, Abishai, and Gittai. Uh, David says that I myself will go out with you. He, he, is, he is not expecting his men to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. And remember, it's when David stayed home in Jerusalem that he fell in a sin with Bathsheba. David has learned, I'm going to lead these men out to war because if, we're supposed to be, if we do what we're supposed to be doing, then we won't be doing what we're not supposed to be doing. And so, so David is ready to lead these men out to battle, but they say, David, no, uh, you're worth 10,000 of us. You would actually be better back in the city and, and send us support, maybe by sending auxiliary troops if they are needed in the midst of the battle. And notice that David listens to his men. 
Another mark of a good leader. And then the king stands by the gate as the army marches out, encouraging them by his very presence. So with all these these action steps David is taking, he is showing tremendous proactive leadership. All good qualities. But verse 5 takes on a different tone as David instructs his top commanders, deal gently for my sake with a young man Absalom. It's been said that in this moment, David was speaking with the authority of the king, but the words are those of affection from a father. He's speaking as a king, but the words are that of a father. As king, David's job is to administer justice. Absalom is a rebel, a traitor, and a murderer who deserves to die. That would be justice. But Absalom is also the son of a father who loves him. And love demands gentleness. Not because Absalom deserves gentleness. But David said, for the sake of his father, David, for my sake, show gentleness to the young man Absalom. You know, David, for all of uh, Absalom's evils, David never saw him as anything but the young man Absalom. Throughout this narrative, we'll see that that four times in this, this drama that unfolds, David always refers to him as the young man Absalom. He was a rebel. He was a traitor. He was a murderer. He was a conspirator. He deserved to die. But he was David's son. And David always saw him as the young man Absalom. Well, everybody heard what the king said when he gave these instructions and were no doubt wondering how all of this would turn out. And that takes us to the second part of 2 Samuel 18, moving from the opening tension now to the triumph in battle. Look at verses 6 to 8 to start with. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So here in just three verses, three sentences really, we have a brief summary of the entire battle. Bottom line is, the good guys won. Despite being outnumbered, David's army crushes the resistance that is led by Absalom. But it's interesting that what claimed the lives of most men, 20,000 of whom died, wasn't the fighters. It was the forest, which would have been a thickly wooded region of rough terrain with ravines, marshes, cliffs. And the forest, as it were, devoured more men than the sword did. Why is that? Well, I think for one reason, uh, David's men would have been very skilled in guerrilla warfare. I mean, that's really how David led all the skirmishes before he became king when he was out in the wilderness defending himself when he was on the run from Saul. But I think we really see God's sovereignty at work. God uses the created forest itself to accomplish his purpose to bring harm upon Absalom and to deliver his servant David. 
One commentator points out, the war to determine who will be king in Jerusalem takes only one battle on a single day. And I thought, man, how can you read that sentence and not think of the cross of Jesus Christ? The whole battle is summarized in a few sentences, but far more space is devoted to the description of Absalom's death. Absalom, who led this revolt against his father. Remember what we read in the previous chapter. This is important. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And boy, did he. Look at verses 9 to 15. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head got caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Yikes. I mean, that's a pretty bad way to go. Verse 9 says that Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. That is not implying that this is a coincidence. It's simply saying that this is what occurred. And we know from the context that this occurred according to God's plan to bring harm upon Absalom. God had ordained it. Absalom was riding on his mule, which we saw last week was the mode of transportation for kings, and Absalom had declared himself to be king. So right to the very end, he's riding like a king. While riding... Perhaps maybe fleeing from his pursuers, looking behind him, he gets caught in an oak, says his head gets caught in the oak. Most commentators believe his hair, which was so thick, got tangled in the branches of the oak. You remember Absalom's hair, don't you? Right? Absalom's beautiful, lush, long, thick hair that he would cut every spring and and weigh it and then publish the results to all of Israel. That beautiful hair that Absalom was so proud of, which became a symbol of his conceit, well, that hair played a role in his destruction. Pride comes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Absalom's hair got caught in the thick branches of a great oak. I find it interesting in the Hebrew text, it says that Absalom's hair got caught in the branches of the great oak. And it would seem to indicate that when this account was written, the oak tree in which he got caught had become famous for that very reason. 
It was the big oak, the big oak tree. Oh yeah, that one. The one where Absalom got caught in and died. It's interesting too that Absalom gets stuck in the oak and he's there dangling in the midair as the mule beneath him continues forward. And that's why he's left dangling between heaven and earth in midair. And I think this not only shows us Absalom's vulnerability for the attack that is about to come upon him, but I think it also symbolizes God is taking away the kingdom that Absalom wanted, right? He's riding a mule because that's indicative of him being a king. And God says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you're not king. I'm literally removing this mule from you. My appointed servant David is the one you have lifted up your heel against. And he will be victorious, not you. So Absalom is is stuck in the oak, helplessly exposed, which will lead to his being executed. And I think this brings us to the main point of today's passage, that the preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. The preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. David always understood this except when it came to Absalom. David always understood this principle, except when it came to Absalom. He wanted Absalom to be treated gently instead of justly. As one commentator put it, David would treat cancer with candy. Joab knew it required surgery, and he nominated himself as surgeon. End quote. So when one of Joab's soldiers says, hey, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree, Joab says, what, you saw? Like, you saw, that's all you did? Why didn't you strike him to the ground? And the soldier says, you heard what David said. Absalom, uh, uh, Joab says, I would have given you a hero's belt and, and silver in return. And he's like, I don't care how much silver you would have given me. You heard what the king said. Nothing is hidden from the king. And Joab, you know that if I was called on for this and suffered the consequences, you would just kind of stand aloof. Joab says, I'm not wasting my time with you. And he said that because he knew what the guy saying was true. Joab was not a people person. Joab was not loyal to any one person. Not even David. It was more to the kingdom he was loyal to. Joab was not a sentimental guy. He could have cared less about people. He couldn't have cared less about people, but he cared a lot about the kingdom. He was zealous for the kingdom, and he was a man that knew how to get a job done, and he was not afraid to take the lead on getting it done. And that's what he does here. He thrusts three javelins into Absalom's heart while he's still alive, hanging in the oak tree. And it could be that this may have represented the three divisions of David's men that he had sent out. Kind of uh, Joab's way of saying, hey, Absalom, this is from all of us. And stabs him in the heart with a javelin. Javelin, The Hebrew term could refer to a spear, maybe even a rod or a stick. Uh, It could be something more blunt, but whatever the case, uh, this is not good. I think we understand that. And then Absalom becomes a human pinata, for Joab's armor bearers, and all ten of them just literally stand around and beat him until he's dead. A gruesome death. Verses 16 to 18. 
Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. Again, he just wants to reduce the collateral damage. He wants to minimize uh, the casualties. Verse 17, And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home or tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Again, Joab is concerned about the kingdom, so he keeps casualties to a minimum. He calls off his men once Absalom, their leader, is dead. And he makes a hasty grave for Absalom, one that is not fit for a king but for a criminal. You might remember that this was how Achan was buried back in the days of Joshua when he committed a crime by stealing after the battle of Jericho. He was buried with a great heap of stones. It's how the king of Ai, who was an enemy of Israel, was buried And so Absalom was both a criminal and an enemy of Israel because of his rebellion against God's anointed king. And so he is buried not as a king, but as a criminal and as an enemy. And his grave stands in contrast to the monument that he had built for himself during his lifetime. This is repeated a couple of times that he built this for himself. Why? So that he would be remembered because he didn't have any sons to continue his name. Now, a few chapters earlier, we actually read that Absalom had three sons, but their names aren't mentioned. And so most commentators think that these sons died very early on in life. We certainly know that by the time he built the pillar, he had no sons by which to carry on his name. And Absalom desperately wanted to be remembered. What's ironic, if you think about it, is that true heroes, the really great men and women of the past, never really cared about how history remembered them. In fact, one of the reasons that we admire heroes in history is because they are so not obsessed with themselves, but they give themselves in service to others, at least for the most part. I think that's particularly true of Christian men and women. You know, it was just a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, as we were watching a missions documentary on India in our Truth Tracks class, that we saw the lasting legacy of William Carey, the father of modern missions. And in that documentary, we saw the gravestone that had the epitaph that Carey himself requested, which read this, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. That's how William Carey, the great missionary to India, wanted to be remembered. Hey, I'm just a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. It is all about God's grace, not about my greatness. Scripture clearly states that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves there under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Let me just pause right here and and ask you, where can you be tempted to pride in your life? (laughs) For some of us, I guess it could be our hair. 
For some of us, it could be how much money we make, how successful we have been in our career. Sometimes it might be how well we raised our children or the house we live in. Sometimes we might look at all the ministry that we've done and and think, wow, we're, we're pretty good compared to other people. Where are you tempted to be prideful? God resists the proud. The Bible says God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that instead of bringing harm upon you, he will use that hand to exalt you in due time. And that time really happens when the Lord Jesus returns and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's when we experience that exaltation. You know, William Carey understood this. David understood this. And David was a sinner, but he understood the grace of God. Absalom never did, and he paid the price. And the preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. One commentator writes, I think this is important, Joab had a deep sense of justice. From his point of view, David's love for Absalom was a dangerous weakness. Joab acted for the sake of David's kingdom as he saw it. In the death of Absalom, justice triumphed over love. But if David had had his way, love would have triumphed over justice. End quote. And this takes us to the final portion of 2 Samuel 18, which ends on a very sad note. Verses 19 to 33. Then Nehemiah, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall not carry But today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, an Ethiopian, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will not have a reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So the idea is, let me pause here, the Cushite was probably going over a shorter territory that was more rugged. And Ahimeaz took a longer route, but it was straight and flat and level, so he was able to outrun him. Continuing on in verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes, he looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. By the way, that's why Joab didn't want to send him because Ahimeaz typically brought good news. 
Verse 28, Then Ahimeaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Some of you can relate to the grief that consumed the heart of David in this moment. For you know what it's like to lose a child. One commentator writes, David was unable to save Absalom from the consequences of his rebellion. Justice demanded one thing, but David's helpless cry longed for something else. End quote. And this whole episode sets before us a problem that David's kingdom could not resolve. It is the same problem that no kingdom in this world can resolve. It's a problem that you and I cannot resolve. And that is the tension between justice and love. Don't you feel that tension in your parenting? Don't we see this tension in politics? You have sort of more the, the right-wingers who are all about taking you know, personal responsibility and you know justice must be served and this and that. And then those more on the left side, and I don't want to stereotype, but you know, we need to be compassionate. We need to help those that are downtrodden and you know, give them more money and stuff like that. And some, <clears throat> both sides have some good points, but we don't seem to be able to come together and reconcile that perfectly. We try to, but we fail. We fail that when it comes to parenting. We, we know that uh, uh, sin must be dealt with. We know that our, our, our children uh, must receive the rod, as it were. But sometimes exactly how to carry that out and what's to be done in a given situation, we struggle with that sense between doing what is right, justice in that sense, and what would love have us to do? How do we gently deal with them without being too harsh? We feel it in our parenting. We feel it in politics. I feel it as a pastor. There are times in a church situation and counseling situation or conflicts that erupt in the church. Like, how do we handle this situation? We know the principles according to God's word. But how we need wisdom in, in carrying out church discipline or resolving conflict. Like, how do you know when to be you know, so tough with people or how harshly to rebuke them in a given stance? And when do you need to be more patient with them and extend more grace and mercy and, and uh, keep praying, asking the Holy Spirit over time to do a greater work in their hearts? Those are tough calls to make. And brothers and sisters, we never ever get them 100% right. Because there's this unresolved tension in this fallen world between justice 
in love. And there's only one place where that tension is resolved. And that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God dealt with full justice, pouring out his just wrath against our sin that was laid upon his perfectly righteous son. And yet scripture also says what? That God so loved the world he gave his only son. Moments ago, Marla read from Romans that God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's at the cross where love and justice, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. And it's only in the consummated kingdom of God when when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory and righteousness reigns and love reigns that this tension will be gone forever. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come. God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God shows his love and becomes both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Righteousness and peace, uh, justice, love, kiss each other at the cross. And we're reconciled to God. One final note. When Ahimeaz said to Joab, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies, Ahimeaz is actually using gospel language. The New Testament equivalent of carry news is preach the gospel. That's the New Testament equivalent of carry news. And that's what preaching the gospel is. It is carrying the good news of what Christ has done to others so that they too can be reconciled to God. And that's what the gospel is all about. That through his death and resurrection for sinners, the Lord Jesus has delivered us from the punishment that we justly deserve. And he has delivered us from our enemies, from sin, from death, and from Satan. And this is the assurance that we have as believers in Christ. And so the the challenge is, number one, have you believed this good news? Have you received the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Have you humbled yourself before God, admitting, I cannot earn my way to heaven? I am a poor and wretched, helpless worm, God. On your kind arms, I fall. All I have is Christ. That's what we sang earlier. All I have is Christ. That is the cry of a humble heart that the Lord receives with great joy and gladness. Come into my kingdom. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will have rest for your souls. How can Jesus utter that promise? Because he's already taken the punishment that we deserve. That's the assurance we have. 
But then the second challenge is this, is not only to believe the good news, but to carry the good news. How can we keep the greatest news in all the world to ourselves while people are perishing all around us in their sins, not knowing ever how love and justice can meet and how they can be right with God? May we have the heart of Ahimeas who said, let me run and carry the news. Let me run and carry the news. For the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, who publish the glad tidings of gospel peace. Let's pray. Lord, we know that this chapter ends on a sad note, but we're thankful that this sermon ends on a good note for us because of how all this connects us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that even as Pastor Mike uttered earlier, based on their series in James at Laterno this week, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. That we would be sure that we have truly humbled ourselves, repented of our sins, and received the gift of salvation through faith in Christ. And also that we would not keep this news to ourselves, but that we would gladly publish it wherever we go. Help us to do that by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.